Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. This message, though it comes from the Old Testament, though it comes from the life of Moses, I think we're going to see that it has practical application for us living today in the church age, for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're continuing looking at that last phase of Moses' life where he actually answered the call of God. And the title of today's message, if you like titles, is The Lord is Among Us. The Lord is Among Us. And that's certainly true of the Christian church as well. We see in Revelation the Lord walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, which he interprets as his local churches. We know that the Lord, where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there in the midst. Now, the context is church discipline and judgment. But why would he not also be in our midst at other times? Is that the only time that he would be in the midst of his people? I kind of think not. The Lord is clearly among us at every stage of our Christian life. Whenever we gather together, he's with us even when we part and we go our separate ways. He's with us during the week, no matter what our circumstances in life are. What this passage is really about is found in the last verse of this passage. He named the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's what this passage is all about. Is the Lord among us or is he not among us? That's the question that's going to be answered by this passage. In this passage, the Lord is revealed as always being among his people And he's able to provide for all their needs. And we're going to see their needs were really more than just a physical need for water. That was an actual need that they had. The passage brings it out. But implicit in the wording of the passage, in the verses that our brother Gilson read for us, other needs come out, spiritual needs. The needs of God's people, whether it be the Jews in the Old Testament or the believer in Christ, our needs are more than just physical, temporal, material needs. There are real spiritual needs, and those are greater in number and greater in necessity than just temporal, physical needs. If you take one thing away from this morning's message, be encouraged by this fact that the Lord is the ever present provider of all of your needs. There is no need that you or I have any day of our life that the Lord is not able to meet, that he's not able to provide for. This passage we'll look at under three headings. It divides itself down very neatly into three parts. The Lord is among us In our needs. Here in verse 1, it's the material or physical needs. And then, secondly, the Lord is among us in our arguments. That's a spiritual need that'll be brought out. And I think this will apply to all of us. Who here has never had an argument in their life? Raise your hand. I hate when it does that. We've all had arguments, I've had arguments. Even with my wife, as hard as that is to envision, I've had arguments with her. She's so sweet, there's nothing to argue about with her, yet I find a way to do that at times. And then the Lord is among us in his provision for resolving conflicts. Arguments and conflicts are not the will of the Lord for your life or mine, and he's provided us with provision for resolving conflicts. 
So we're going to look at this passage primarily from that standpoint. It's implicit in there. There's a quarrel. It's called a quarrel. It's, it's written a couple times in these seven verses. It actually happened. We saw it as our brother Gilson read those verses for us. A few years back, we had a several-month uh, midweek series of messages on good communication and conflict resolution, which I taught. I can't cover several months of teaching in one message, but some of the key aspects of conflict resolution I hope to bring out for you that you'll be able to apply to your life if by some chance you happen to be in an argument, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's be with a parent or a child or your supervisor at work or your neighbor or an extended family member or, God forbid, a brother or sister in Christ. So let's get right into this. God is among us in our needs, in our physical needs. The Lord sometimes leads you to a place of need so that you can see that he is with you. When we don't have need, sometimes we forget about the Lord. But when we have a need in our life, it's then when we're brought face-to-face -face with the fact not only of our need, but our inability to meet those needs and our dependence upon the Lord God to meet those needs for us. In verse 1, then all the congregation, not just some of the congregation, all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages. All that means is they would move a certain amount each day. Sometimes as we read elsewhere about their wanderings in the wilderness, that they might stay for a day in one area, sometimes even a month in one area before the glory of the Lord would move them forward to somewhere else in the wilderness. They journeyed by stages from the wilderness of, of scene according to the command of the Lord. This was from the Lord. It wasn't merely from Moses or the elders of Israel. They were here and they moved and they lived their life in the wilderness according to the command of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. They had a real legitimate need in their life. Water was a necessity, not just a want. It was not simply a desire that they had for something over and above the necessities of life. Water was definitely needed. It was a genuine need, a real need. You and I have real needs in our life as well. We find ourselves in different situations in life because of the sovereign plan of God. He has guided our life. He has ordained our life to have certain circumstances and situations in it, just as the children of Israel and Moses did. And so the Lord has commanded that this comes to pass in our life. He will lead us at times to a place of need so that we can see that no matter where we are in life, He is with us and He is able to meet that need. It's to cause us. Needs in our life are intended to focus our gaze on the Lord above not simply on the circumstances that surround us. When, it, when you have a real need in your life, the Lord is trying to talk to you. He's trying to remind you of Him. Jesus Christ put it this way, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Sometimes we're so focused on the temporal, what's all around us, on our needs, that we lose sight of the Lord. He wants us to focus on Him first and foremost in our life, and He will bring us to a place of need where we lack 
in order that we focus our gaze upon him and remember that we are always dependent upon him. This brings us to our second point. The Lord is among us in our our arguments. These are our spiritual needs. This is one example of a spiritual need. Whenever there is a quarrel between two people, an interpersonal conflict, whenever there is an argument, one thing should come to your mind. You have a spiritual need. Arguments and quarrels do not reveal a new area of sin in our life. They reveal an existing area of sin in our life. They're only the revelation of it. They're not the spawning of something new. It reveals to us what is in our heart, what is in our soul already. The Lord is present when you allow a need to produce conflict. Very often when there is a need, we are so focused on the need, the lack of what we feel we genuinely need, that we lose sight of the one who can meet that need. He is present when the need produces a conflict. We often allow a need, whether it's the need for something material or whether there's the need for respect, something like that, not tangible. I feel like I should have respect from my wife and children or from those who work for me. Those under my authority. I I should have respect, a wife might feel, from her husband. She should be loved and respected by her husband or by by her children. I feel like there should be gratitude expressed toward me or appreciation for what I do. And I don't just mean me. I'm just using me as an example of all of us, we often feel this way. When we don't get what we think we deserve from others, we recognize that as a need. It's a spiritual need, actually. And as a result, when we don't get what we feel we deserve, when in reality, what do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath and condemnation for all eternity. That's all we deserve as sinners in rebellion against him. When we recognize a need and we're not getting what we think we deserve, conflicts often occur. And those conflicts are often, if it's not with God, as we'll see, God gets involved in this, it's conflicts with others, often those who are closest to us that we should display the most love for. Therefore, as a result, the therefore connects it with verse 1. There was no water to drink. Therefore, as a result of their need for water, the people quarreled with Moses, their leader, and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? It was not a simple request. It was not a polite request. Give us water that we may drink. It wasn't an oh, pretty please. Moses clearly identifies the attitude that they approached him in. Why do you quarrel? Why do you fight? Why do you want to argue with me? What's your beef? Is what he's saying. The Lord is present when you argue with unreasonable expectations. Most arguments either start out with an unreasonable expectation, or if they progress back and forth between two people, one or both will start to become unreasonable. If it wasn't right off the bat, it will be as the argument continues. More and more unreasonableness enters in. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water that we may drink. How is Moses going to give them water? He's just a man. How's he supposed to give water to this vast number of people, the entire nation of Israel? Remember, they're in a desert. Where's he going to get all that water? That's 
completely unreasonable for any of them, let alone the entire nation collectively, to look to Moses the man and say, you give us water to drink. Where's he going to do that? Quarrels and arguments have unreasonable expectations that we place upon the other person. Your arguments with others are in reality arguments with the Lord. This is in every single argument or quarrel or strong disagreement. I'm not talking about a calm difference of opinion. I might see things one way, my wife might see things another way, and we talk it through, and we come to a conclusion and make a decision together as to how we should proceed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an argument, a quarrel, a fight. I don't mean physical because I'm afraid of her. She'd definitely do a number on me. But when we argue, when we fight, these are in reality arguments with the Lord. How does that work? Well, we see that it is a fact in this case. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you put the Lord to the test? He brings the Lord right into this because he recognized that any quarrel with him is also an argument, a quarrel with the Lord. It's putting the Lord to the test. Now, why is that so? Who is the sovereign God of heaven and earth? It's not Moses. It's not me. It's not you. It's the Lord God. He is the one who has ordained a plan. And that plan includes every situation and circumstance in life, including our blessings and our needs. The Lord has allowed a trial, a need, to come into our life. It's not Moses' fault that they were without water. It's not Moses' fault that they had this need. It's not your spouse's fault, your parents' fault, your child's fault, an extended member's fault, your boss's fault, your employee's fault your neighbor's fault, it's not another person's fault that a certain need, a certain thing that you think you actually need, whether you do or whether you just want it, desire it, it's not primarily their fault that it has come into your life. The Lord has ordained your life and mine to include the things we need to first bring us to salvation in Christ and secondly, to help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has decided from eternity past that we needed that situation, that lack of water, so to speak, at that moment in our life to make us more like Christ, to purge us of some of our unchristlikeness, to polish us, to burnish off the rough edges of our character, and our desires that we might have. Arguments with others are always arguments with the Lord because he is the one who has allowed that situation to come to pass. What we're really saying is, I am not happy that this has entered my life, and we respond sinfully to it. Instead of responding with a question to the Lord, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? In every situation, in every need, the Lord is trying to teach us something. We can even thank him for it. Oh, Lord, thank you for this. Reveal to me how I need to be more like Christ. What is it you're trying to show me and teach me? Instead, we take, out, we take it out on someone else and we end up in an argument with them, when really we don't like what the sovereign God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, has ordained for our life. Every argument, 
is ultimately with the Lord God. We've got a problem with Him. And yet, the Scripture tells us, He who did not spare His own Son, yet freely delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? God has already shown us how much He loves us by freely giving us His Son, Jesus Christ. His one and only, His only begotten, His only beloved Son, He gave for you and I. Can we ever doubt His love for us? He's already given us His very best. Any need that comes into our life is also for our good. Keep that in mind that when we argue with someone else, what we're really doing ultimately is expressing our perceived dissatisfaction with the Lord God. And there's no reason why we should be dissatisfied with Him after what He's done for us. The Lord is present when you argue untruthfully, and that often happens in an argument. Maybe we're giving our perception which is not accurate. Maybe we're even saying things that are not true. And we play the blame game. That comes out in almost every argument. The word you comes out of our mouth over and over, does it not? When we have a disagreement. We point the figure at the other person and the word you comes out. When really, the war, the spiritual war is in our heart. It's in our soul. We're the ones fighting against what God has allowed to enter our life, and we try to blame the other person. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt? I thought it was the Lord who brought them out. Who was it who parted the Red Sea? Was it just Moses? Or did God have something to do with it? No, the scripture is clear. The Lord caused a strong wind to come up and part the waters. You brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with, with thirst. The blame game is played almost without exception whenever we have an argument. We use the word you and we blame the other person for some situation in our life that the Lord has sovereignly ordained for his glory and for your eternal blessing. Every situation, every circumstance, every need is intended for your eternal blessing. He works all things after the counsel of his will. It didn't surprise the Lord. The Lord counseled and purposed every aspect of your life and mine. The Lord is present when we argue untruthfully. He's there. He knows what the untruth is. Here, it's that Moses was not the one who in and of himself brought them out of Egypt. They found themselves here because the Lord had brought them along to that point where the Lord knew there was going to be a need, the need for water in this case. The same is with you and I. The Lord carries us along every step of the way, caring for us. We could have had a need at any time. The reason why we didn't have a need earlier is because the Lord blessed us. But in a time of need, we forget all about that, and we just focus on the need. We end up in an argument, untruthfully, and we play the blame game. It's not the other person. It's the Lord who has allowed that trial to come into our life. The Lord is present when your argument with someone turns into an argument with God. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? The focus is on himself. He, he's getting the grumbling. They're quarreling. They're arguing with him. He doesn't like it. He feels powerless to do anything about it, and indeed he is. He can't give them water. Not even a single person could he give, them, give water to much less the entire nation of Israel. And so Moses cries out with the Lord, and he says, what shall I do with this people? Now, I'm going a little beyond the text of Scripture here, but when I read those words, I'm reminded of something. 
the first time the blame game was ever played in Genesis chapter 3, in, in the fall. God says to Adam, what did you do? And what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. The blame game. It's her fault, not mine that I ate. What shall I do with this people that you gave me? I, I sort of add those words in. They're not there. You know, don't take that as gospel. But I think that's the idea, knowing human nature, knowing how we all are. Here, I think he's having an argument with God. He cried out. He didn't just say to the Lord. I think he's expressing, given the emotional state that he's in, he's probably expressing more than just his need. He's expressing his satisfaction, what dissatisfaction. What shall I do with these people? The Lord is present when you argue, assuming the worst about someone. This occurs probably in every single argument and is perhaps the number one reason why a heated argument starts, why an interpersonal conflict between two people or one person and a group of people, as is the case here, why it starts. Instead of thinking the best about the other person or the other people, we assume the worst. We assign evil intent. We assign bad motives to what the other person did. They say, you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children with thirst. Is that really true? Moses brought them up to kill them? Why not just kill them in Egypt? This makes no sense. It's unreasonable. It's assuming the worst about Moses. So Moses cries out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with these people? A little more and they will stone me. Oh no, they're going to kill me. He's assuming the worst about them. They never said, we're going to kill you if we don't get water. No one can know the heart of another person except the Lord God. I can't tell you how many times in doing counseling that I hear, when I hear what the problem is, the one person, usually both of them, are assuming the worst about the person that they should love. They're assuming bad motives. It might just be a misunderstanding. In fact, some of the fault might even lie, for example, with me. Maybe I didn't make my desires clear. Maybe I didn't give instructions that were clear enough for the other person to follow or detailed enough. Yet, I'm going to assume that they had bad motives in not following the instructions or the direction that I give. You never do what I tell you. Have you ever heard anyone say that to you or have you ever said it? We like to use these superlatives. You always, you never. Is that really true? No, it's not true. Otherwise, we'd have a constant argument. Day after day, hour after hour. It would just be a nonstop argument. The fact that it's, life is not all fighting and arguing and it may degenerate to that point. Whenever two people see each other, they, they go right at it. But that's not the way it initially started. Don't assume the worst about someone, especially those who are closest to you, family members, a spouse. Think the best. We don't know their heart. In fact, I'll tell you something. According to Scripture, whenever we judge another person's motive, we're condemning ourselves. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes this, Therefore you are without excuse, every one of you who judges your brother. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you are doing the very thing, the very same thing. When we judge the motives of another, we might be right about their motives. Usually we're wrong. 
We don't know their heart. We don't know their motives. But here's one thing we're 100% right about every single time we judge the motives of another, that we have the same evil motive in us. According to Romans 2.1, we condemn ourselves every time we judge another. The more harshly we judge another, the more emotional capital we invest in our judgment of another, the more guilty we are of the very thing, the very same root attitude that we accuse the other person of. In fact, if we examined it carefully, even if we did not see how we act towards that other person in the same way, with the same heart motives, even if that were not true, we act that way towards God. We accuse the other person of rebellion when we are rebelling against God. Think the best of others. The only way you can know anyone's motive is to ask questions, investigate. Why did you say that to me? Can you explain that? I'd like to understand why you answered my question that way or why you said that to me. Or can you, are, are you upset with me? Instead of the accusation, why do you always get upset? Ask, are you upset? No, sometimes a person can simply be confused and that may come across as you thinking that they're annoyed with you. Ask a question, investigate. The only way you can know the heart is to ask the other person what their heart attitude was, what the motives of their heart were, instead of assuming the worst, instead of thinking that we know their motives when we don't. We don't know what's in the heart of a man. We don't know what's in the heart of someone that we love deeply. Only the Lord God does. The Lord is among us in his provision for resolving conflicts. He's there, not just during the argument, but God is a God of peace. He has called us to peace with one another. He himself has made peace. His son was the prince of peace. He wants to resolve conflicts and arguments in a God-glorifying way that will build up the other person and build us up as well. The Lord is present with the leadership of his people to help resolve conflicts. Now, leadership doesn't always have to be involved in resolving conflicts. On this particular occasion, they were. They were there as witnesses of what the Lord would do. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel. There were four different parties involved here. The Lord, Moses, the people, and some of the elders of Israel. Conflicts often start to draw in other people, and the Lord is present no matter if it's just two people or whether it extends to multiple parties. The Lord is always there, and he's present with leadership to help resolve some conflicts if that becomes necessary. You don't have to bear the burden of an unresolved conflict that you're just having trouble resolving without seeking out other help. And here's one of the problems that often happens when people want help with a problem. One of the parties involved wants to seek out help from someone that they feel will support them. They're not really seeking an end to the conflict. They don't want an unbiased opinion. They just want to be proven right. Be very, very careful in who you approach to try to help you resolve a conflict. Our natural tendency will be to try to get those who we feel support us and we gang up on the other person. Instead, in a multitude of counselors, there's victory, but in a multitude of good counselors, there's victory. It's really the quality of the counselors 
the Lord has raised up leadership, and he can use that leadership to help you with interpersonal conflicts. The Lord is present with the means he wants you to use to resolve conflicts. He's given us ways to resolve conflicts. The Lord said, it was the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, he gave him a command, pass. He gave him another command, take in your hand your staff, the symbol of the Lord's power in Moses' hand, with which you struck the Nile, and it was turned to blood, the first plague, and go. He gave him three commands, pass, take, go. It was the word of the Lord. That's no different than today. The Lord has given his word in the Bible to help us resolve conflicts. There's instruction there on how we ought to behave, how we ought to speak, how we ought to think, what we should desire, how to resolve conflicts. I'll tell you this. If you want to resolve a conflict, an argument, the way to be victorious is to be humble. The high road is the low road, the road of humility. You have the promise from the Lord Jesus Christ given more than once during his ministry. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. To go high in the Christian life, you go low. You follow the example of Christ, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be tenaciously retained in his grasp, but he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a man, a bondservant. The Lord is present. He wants us to use his word to resolve conflicts, just like he gave his word to Moses there. The Lord has given us instructions in his word. That is the means to resolve conflict. The instructions are there. The Lord is present when you begin to resolve the conflict. The Lord didn't say, okay, Moses, you go. I've given you instructions. Go, you know, uh, pass before the people. Take your rod. Go. He says, I will stand before you there on the rocket, Chorev. I will stand before you. He was there from the beginning of the resolution. He doesn't send us out on, it, on our own. He is there. Whenever we obey his word to resolve a conflict, the Lord is standing there with us. The Lord is present and will use others to help resolve a conflict. He says to Moses, you strike the rock and water will come out. Now, that's very strange, water coming out of a rock, at least in large quantities. Many rocks, even granite, can have water in it. But here, water's going to come out enough for the people to drink. This was miraculous. This was unusual. It was not to be expected. But notice, Moses had a part. You strike the rock. God was not going to strike the rock. Nor was Moses going to cause water to come out of the rock. Striking a rock? I mean, this was a wooden staff that he had. He's not going to crack a rock with it. And water is going to come gushing out enough for all the people. That was the Lord's part. When you follow the Lord's instructions that he gives in his word, by his word, like Moses did, the results will be what God has promised. You strike the rock, that's your part, that's Moses' part. Water will come out. God has his part. The Lord is present, but he doesn't resolve the conflict all on his own. In fact, in any conflict, the one who is the most spiritual or most spiritually minded at the moment will be the first one to act to resolve that conflict. 
If you want to resolve a conflict, you be the spiritually minded one. You be the more spiritually mature one. You take the first steps to resolve a conflict. I I remember once my wife and I were counseling a couple uh, back when we were in Connecticut, and I explained this principle to them. And then they both tried to be the first one to apologize, to take the first step to end the conflict. Their sinful pride was getting in there. It was just more of what caused the argument, but it's easier to steer a moving ship. It's just kind of humorous to see them both trying to talk over the other and be more apologetic than the other so they could simply say, you see, I'm the more spiritually mature one. The argument was really all your fault. That's the wrong way to do it. But it still is true that the one who is the more spiritually minded at that point in time is the one who will take the first step to resolve the conflict. You don't have to strain your imagination. I'm sure we've all seen it. We may even be involved in it. I'm not going to say I'm sorry if they don't apologize. I'm not going to ask forgiveness if he or she doesn't ask forgiveness for their sin against me. I mean, that's not a Christ-like attitude. The one who is most spiritually mature, most spiritually minded in the moment, will always take the first step to make it right. doesn't matter that the other person is 98% wrong. God wants us to make our 2% right. That 98%, that's between the Holy Spirit and them. The Holy Spirit, one thing I know about the Holy Spirit is he never sleeps on the job. He can convict that other person of their 2% or their 98% or their 50-50 just as he's convicted me to take the first step and ask forgiveness for my sin, either that led up to the argument or my sin that was displayed in my hurtful words, angry words in the argument. I'm not the Holy Spirit I shouldn't say things like, well, I was wrong, but so were you. We don't blame shift. We don't minimize our sin. Yeah, you know, I I was a little wrong, but you were very wrong. No, we don't minimize. Sin is sin. You want to know how sinful sin is? One sin would have put Christ on the cross. Our little, littlest sin cost Jesus Christ his life and his life's blood that he shed. That's how sinful, how awful sin is. It cost Christ his life. Never minimize our sin. Oh, I just did a little thing, but you... Brothers and sisters, What I'm talking about here and not blame shifting, not minimizing our sin, it's really described as humility. It's recognizing that we're no better than anyone else. We're simply a sinner saved by grace. Christ shed his blood as much for them as he did for me. The Lord will use others to help resolve a conflict. He'll use you to help resolve a conflict. Be the one who takes the first step in any argument, any conflict, any quarrel to make it right. Paul writes this in Romans, as far as possible, as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. As far as possible. That means you and I take the first step We don't wait for the other person. Arguments are always wrongful tests of the Lord's presence. He, Moses, named the place Massah, test or testing, and Meribah, quarrel or argument or conflict because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord. 
Is the Lord present amongst us or not? They would go on to say. Arguments, interpersonal conflicts are always wrongful tests of the Lord's presence. He is there. We act like he's not. I mean, some. can you imagine for a moment, in the middle of an argument, the Lord Jesus Christ miraculously appears in your kitchen, in your place of business, the way he miraculously appeared in the locked upper room on the day of his resurrection. They stopped. Whoa, the Lord's here. What what would change in our interpersonal conflict, in the words that we say to another person, if suddenly we saw the Lord there? Oopsie. Would I say the next thing that I was about to say? Probably not. The Lord's presence is always there, and every argument tests the Lord. The Lord is present even when you doubt his presence during arguments. He is there. The quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? He is always amongst us. He hears every argument. He hears every hurtful, unchristlike word that comes out of our mouth. He is always there. He knows every evil desire in our heart. And yet, he still loves us. He still went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, shed his life's blood and died, bore our sins in his body on the cross, as the Scripture says. Crucified, put to death, judged by his Holy Father, in our place, in the sinner's place. That's what he did. If you're here this morning and you are still having that argument with God, know this, the Scripture says that if while we were enemies, rebels against God, we were reconciled, made peace with God through the death of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10. God sent his son to bear the sins of the world and die in the sinner's place on the cross. He wants peace with you. If you want peace with him, trust in Jesus Christ. We're reconciled to God, not through our prayers, not through our efforts, not through our good deeds, not through our giving, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. The death of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will make peace between God and man. The only thing that will end your argument with God, your rebellious argument with God, is to trust in the death of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you to do that. Make peace with God. He's already provided a way for him to have peace with you through the death of his son. End that argument with God. Humble yourself in your argument with God. Acknowledge that you're a sinner deserving his wrath and judgment. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God, crying out to him for salvation, and he will save you. If you believe that with your whole heart, if you trust in that and nothing else, he will save you and you will have peace with God. He'll put an end to that conflict that you have with him that wages in your soul against him. Trust in him, have peace with him. We've seen that the Lord is among us in our physical, temporal needs. The Lord is amongst us in our spiritual needs, which is brought out in an argument in the passage, and the Lord is amongst us in his provision for resolving conflicts. He doesn't leave it to us to figure out how to resolve conflicts. He gives us instructions in his word to resolve our conflicts. So let me challenge you with this. 
Today, will you begin to pray that times of need to not result in arguments or conflicts with others, whether it be in business or in family, it doesn't matter. Times of need do not have to result in conflicts. They can result in greater trust and dependence upon God, a greater prayer life. Let it be that instead. And today, will you begin to pray to realize that the Lord is present at every argument? I can tell you right now, I, I, I really doubt over all the years of my life that if I saw the Lord standing present, I could see him with my eyes, that I might have thought twice about having an argument with someone, having a heated disagreement with someone. I might have thought twice about what words I would intend to utter. And yet, the truth is, even though I don't see him with my eyes, he is there. He is present. Will you realize that he's present at every argument and let that thought silence us? We're arguing in front of the Lord. There's always at least three in an argument. The Lord is the third one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, how we thank you that you are always among us, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. You are there in the good times and the bad times. You are there in every need. You don't forsake us and leave us on our own. We thank you that you love us that much to always be there. We, we thank you that you love us so much that even when we act in ways that you, Lord Jesus, never would, you don't turn your back on us, but you're present there with the means, the ways, the tools that we can use to resolve any conflict for your glory. Dear God, would you be pleased to knit our hearts together in Christ-like love so that we only think the best of the other person instead of assuming the worst? Dear God, help us to do this so that you are glorified to the fullest in our interactions with each other. Help our light to shine in that way, help our love to show to the world around us what Jesus Christ can do in the life of a person. Dear God, help us to love those who are unlovable. And dear God, help us please to be more lovable ourselves for we acknowledge that we ha all have rough edges that can be hard to take at times. Be pleased to glorify yourself in and through us, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen.